Good morning. I want to welcome you to Rivermont today and invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 56. Psalm 56, as we take a little bit of a detour from the history of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at a song that David sang while he was on the run. What did he sing about? What would you sing about when you're in times of desperation in your own life? Psalm 56, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord in whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see what wonderful things you have for us in your word. Strengthen us and enable us to live before your face and trust in the Lord Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. A number of weeks ago at our Rivermont Fellowship Night for the summer, we showed the movie Inside Out Behind Country Gardens. I don't know how many of you were there. It was a wonderful time. But I had never seen the movie before. And I tell you, it, it's a fantastic movie. It's a story about a family that, that moves from Minnesota to San Francisco. And they have a middle school girl named Riley. And as you might imagine, that kind of move for a middle school girl was very disruptive. But we have the opportunity in that movie not only to see the disruption on the outside of her life but what it looks like on the inside of this young girl. The movie takes us to the seat of her emotions and to the headquarters, it calls it. And her emotions are turned into characters in the story. How joy and sadness and fear and disgust and anger are at work in her in this time of turbulence as her life has been turned upside down. In one scene, Riley is really struggling after her first day of school and she comes home and has dinner with her parents. And those of you parents who've moved with your children before, you can imagine that dinner at the table that night was a little bit difficult. Parents tried to engage Riley in conversation, but, but nothing would come out. She really had zero interest in talking to her parents. In reality, she was petulant, she was disrespectful, she yelled at her parents, and she shoved her plate of food away. And if we looked on the outside we might be tempted to believe something of Riley that really isn't true. We might be tempted to believe that maybe she's come under influence of bad teenagers. Maybe she's transitioning to become a disrespectful person. And in fact, her dad responds just that way. 
He treats this outburst as if it's something needing to be squashed with all of his authority. But at the table, we're given the inside view. We see that inside Riley, the emotions of joy and sadness had been swept out of headquarters. They were completely gone. And all that was left was fear and disgust and anger. And they were running amok in her life. No wonder she behaved the way that she did at dinner. Knowing what was going on inside of her helps us to understand what's happening on the outside. Helps us to understand the behavior. When you bring the inside out, it helps you to understand what you see. And we've been examining David's life on the outside all summer. We've looked at all the action sequences. We've seen how uh, what it looked like for David to have faith in the Lord when he was fighting against Goliath. We looked at what it looked like to have David submit to the Lord's provision instead of grasp the throne from King Saul. There was a deep and abiding trust where David cast himself before the Lord to submit, even if it cost him and even if his life had to continue to be spent on the run. Do you ever wonder how he did that? Do you ever wonder where that came from, where that strength came from to live before God in that way? And do you ever wonder, how do I get that? How do I live before the Lord in that way? Well, this morning, I hope we're going to get some sense of how that happens in us. We're going to take the inside view in David's life. And thankfully, we have the inside view given for us in the Psalms. Several of the Psalms are written about this period of David's life. The songs that he sang, the prayers that he prayed when he was running in the desert. Psalm 34, Psalm 56, 57 and 59 and a few others all come from this period of David's life. When he was praying on the run. What did the battle for his soul look like when he was praying, when he was struggling? What does it look like to pray under that kind of stress and try to keep your vengeance and your anger from welling up in your soul and coming out? How do you and I pray when we're on the run? First of all, we see in this prayer, we pray on the run with honesty. A deep honesty. That's what we see in David's life. The events that are behind this psalm are from 1 Samuel 21 and 22. When David was sent on an errand by King Saul, and it was really meant as a ruse to get him out in the desert so that he could be murdered. And David ended up running away to a city called Nob and a priest named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech gave him bread because David was starving to death. And also in that town of Nob, there was a servant of Saul who saw David come into the town and went to tell Saul's army, he's here, come and get him. And in order to stay alive, David had to run. He had no other choice but to run to the arch enemies of God's people, to the Philistines in order to escape. And when he got there, he pretended to have gone crazy. And his life was spared and sent back out into the desert again to live another day, but barely. He was being hunted like a dog. His only hope was to keep running and keep hiding and keep seeking to thread the needle between escaping Saul's army and the Philistine bullies that were also trying to take his life. Does David's words begin to make a little bit more sense in this psalm? In verse 1, I'm being trampled. Attackers are oppressing me, verse 2. They're attacking me proudly. We get the sense that David feels like a little rabbit. And he's running through the desert, quaking and being driven into holes in the ground while the hunter lurks outside, all the while knowing exactly where he is and trying to catch their prey. 
Verse 5, he says their thoughts are evil. They stir up strife. In verse 6, they watch, they lurk, they wait. Do you hear that desperation in David's heart in his life? He's, He's telling the Lord about this, remember. This is a song that David composed to be sung before Jesus. Do you hear that sheer terror and that desperate dependence upon the Lord as David speaks to God? And then in verse 7, he gets really honest before the Lord. He says, for their crime, will they escape? Here's the paraphrase. Are you really going to let them get away with this, God? This is a prayer of feeling abandoned by the Lord. Here he is hiding in a cave, hiding in a hole in the ground, and all of his enemies and the enemies of God are doing whatever they want. And he's saying, God, really? Are you going to let them get away with this? Do you not care? Do you not care about me? Where are you if you let them treat your king this way? You ever feel like that? No, I do. And the Lord wants to hear about it. When we feel that way. The Lord wants to know in honesty what's going on in the depth of our souls. The problem is that so often we treat the Lord like He's a member of our country club. We need a social relationship with the Lord. We need to put our best foot forward. You know, that's what you do at the club. You put your best foot forward. You you dress up. You look put together. You look respectable. You look presentable. We do that with one another. So often we tend to put the best foot forward when we're in pain and we try to minimize it or spiritualize it into some quick lesson and wrap it all up with a bow on the top. And we do the same thing before the Lord. We seek a social, presentable relationship with God, pretending before His face to be what we think we should be before Him. But that's not what the Lord wants. And that's not how you nor I are going to get through those tough times when we're praying on the run. But instead, the Lord wants an honest and an earthy and authentic relationship with you where you pour out your heart before Him exactly how you feel and exactly what's happening. And to prove it, He even models it for us here in the hymn book of His people. It's in the Psalms. Recorded exactly how David felt so that you and I have language to express our pain before the Lord too. Here's a question for you. Before you ask the Lord to do something for you, how often do you spend time just relating to Him first? How often do you spend time just speaking to Him in honest ways about how fearful or desperate or maybe even joyful you feel? But instead, do we relate to Him in a way that kind of just puts a spiritual quarter in the gumball machines and turns it and expects Him to spit out an answer or spit out a blessing? The Lord calls for us to relate to Him in honesty first because He cares about your heart. He cares about what's going on in my life and in your life. He calls on us to relate to Him in honesty as we worship and as we sing and as we pray. Larry Crabb, in his wonderful book on prayer called Papa Prayer, I'd encourage you all to read it. It's fantastic. But he calls it finding your red dot. Now, we all know what that means. Whenever you go to the mall and you look at the directory, the kiosk, you know, before you can figure out where you're going to go, you need to find the red dot. And what's the red dot? That's where you are, right? Sometimes it's a red star. Sometimes it's a red dot. And before you know where you want to go, you've got to find out where you are on the map. Same thing is true in our 
spiritual life, in our emotional life, our prayer life before the Lord. When you're in distress, when you're struggling, when you're having a really hard time, take the time in God's presence to figure out where you are internally. Take the time to live inside out before the Lord. To pour out before Him what's going on inside of you before you ask Him to do something for you. That's what it looks like to have a prayer life when you're on the run. It begins with honesty. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. We go from honesty to praying with perspective. Look at verse 3. David said, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Another way to translate verse 3 is this. In the day when I may well be afraid, I cling trustfully to you. Grammar is a conditional future. In the day when I well may be afraid, maybe it's not today, but maybe it is. In the day when I well may be afraid, I cling trustfully to you, God. Now, why is that? Is it because David has a dependable army to look to? No. Rather, he trusts in the word of the Lord, verse 3 it says, and against the God who makes promises, what can man do to stop it? What can flesh do to oppose the God who makes promises, the God who's creator, the God who's sustainer, the God who makes promises? What can man do to upend those promises that God makes? He repeats the same thing at the end in verse 11. Well, what's the, the word of promise that the Lord could provide perspective on Saul's army hunting him down? What's the word of promise that David could cling to as he's being pushed around by the bullies of the Philistines? Well, it was the promise that the Lord would have a king on the throne and he would save his people. It was the promise that David himself would sit on that throne. God had promised him that no matter what man may try to do to him, God's promises stood. It was the promise that sin and rebellion would not have the last word. But God's promises of salvation and redemption, those would have the last word. No matter who was hunting him, no matter what man wanted, God rules and God makes promises. And David says, I'm going to trust in the Lord who makes promises rather than these men who threaten me. That praying on the run that grasps that perspective of promise. And he continues in verse 7. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. He's asking, Lord, are you really going to let them get away with this? These people who are thumbing their nose at you, who are perpetrating evil upon your people, who are trying to kill me? Lord, he says, in your holy anger, deal with the real evil in this world. Keep your promise of opposing those who oppose you. Keep your promise of removing evil from your kingdom. They think they're getting away with it, God. But bring them to an end of their ability to harm your people and harm me. Essentially, he's asking the Lord to bring judgment upon the enemies of God's people. Now, you and I may not often consider it, but that judgment of God upon sin to remove it, to subdue it, to cleanse us, is really our only hope too. 
God has promised in holiness to remove sin from this world once and for all. He has promised to pour out judgment on opposition to His name. He has promised that one day every injustice, every rebellion, every desire to harm His people, every oppression, every slander, every attack is going to be brought to an end. And do you and I not long for those things when we see evil run rampant in this world? Do we not weep and and cry out to the Lord, do something! God, we're, we're being killed here, do something! And when we see brothers and sisters starving... When refugees are being brutalized, when when we're seeing masses of people sent to their death so that a few can hoard the resources, when people are gunned down all over the world, when people are mown down by trucks, do we not say, God, do something? Of course we do. We long for this world to be cleansed. We long for this world to be healed. And the Lord promises to do it through judgment. He promises the removal of evil and its elements in this world. One day, judgment will come. And sometimes that judgment from the last day intrudes into this world today. And we see a little bit of the Lord removing the face of evil from harming His people. Sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes we get a foretaste. But here's the thing. That line of necessary judgment cuts right through the middle of my heart and yours too. It's not only the nations out there that deserve judgment. We deserve it too. Judgment shall come upon us all. And either we shall bear, we shall bear judgment for our rebellion or Jesus in our place upon the cross bears the judgment for our rebellion. There's only two ways to handle it. Either we take our judgment upon ourselves on the last day or the Lord Jesus has been judged in our place upon the cross. It's in the cross that God's rightful wrath has been poured out so that sin can terrorize us no more. Think about that. One day in the presence of Jesus, His holy, holy, blazing holy eyes, you will appear before Him. And if you trust in Jesus' work on your behalf, His work on the cross, that He's taken all of your judgment upon Himself. All of your selfishness or lies or lusts or or sins or the ways that we hurt others, the way we oppress, the way we turn a blind eye to someone who's being hurt. All of that that deserves the judgment of God. We will know and see that it has been laid upon Jesus and we will stand in His presence holy and clean. And that can give us perspective. What can flesh do to me? If Jesus' victory is so complete, if Jesus' victory is so complete that He can declare that I am holy and righteous in His sight, what can man do to me? How could He not keep His promises to care for us in our desperation if He has already done the work that's necessary to protect us from our most potent enemy of sin and death and the devil? Of course, of course in the day when I may be afraid I can cling trustfully to the Lord. He's already won the victory. Of course it's safe to entrust our lives to the one who judges justly. Because he's the one who knows us fully. And he loves us completely. And he has taken our judgment upon himself absolutely. 
What can man do to me? What can anyone threaten me with when the favor and the smile of God has been offered to His people? Of course He will draw near to us. David takes that perspective one step deeper in verse 9 when he says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. That's what it looks like on the inside of our souls to entrust our lives to the Lord rather than seize the things that we think we have to have. It looks like praying in confidence because God is for me. Another way to say it is this. We struggle best for perspective from our knees. Our prayers, our desires spread out before the Lord is the best and most effective way to struggle against our self-seeking souls. We struggle best, we fight best, we subdue the sin in our hearts best from our knees by holding fast to the confidence of the God who is for us and by His Spirit within us. Whenever you long for healing from your knees... Confess, God is for me. Whenever you're slandered, God is for me. Whenever you don't see a way forward, feeling like you, like David, are down in a hole, God is for me. When you face a task that seems much too large for you to handle, God is for me. From our knees as we cry out to the Lord, as our hearts are reminded by the Spirit of God, then we get up from our knees having found the strength to follow after Him in His will. It's perspective. Our ability to live out of tune with the world that grasps for itself and in tune with the God who is for us is going to be found on our knees. Remembering a God who declares victory over our sin. My sin and yours. My rebellion and your rebellion. My judgment and your judgment. He's declared victory over it on the cross. And He invites us into His family where He says, I am for you. It's perspective when we're praying on the run. And finally, praying on the run looks like hope. We find hope when we remember that God's eyes upon us. His careful eye follows us into every cave, every trial, every struggle, Every illness. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see, friends, God sees and He knows all about our pain. How comforting is that to know that God's eye is upon us? But what's more, He not only sees, but He cares. He intimately cares about what's happening to you so much so that your tears are placed in His bottle. It's a metaphor for Him to say, what bothers you bothers me. The pain in your life gives anguish in my heart too. I care so much about you that I bottle your tears. They're precious before me. Uh, Missy and I do something similar. We, We keep baby teeth in a little plastic container. Do any of you other parents keep baby teeth? You know, We have a, a little blue plastic container and it's kept in our bedroom in our chest of drawers and I don't know how many teeth we've got crammed into that container. There are lots of them. 
And we put these baby teeth in that container because we deeply prize every one of them. We remember when our children lost them. We remember sometimes their tears. We remember the joy of seeing it get past. We, we celebrate how they've grown by having this bottle, having this container of something so precious to us. We do that because we love our kids. And God does the same for you. He bottles up and prizes every single tear you have ever shed. He says in verse 8, is that not incredible? He keeps count even of all the tossing and the turning when you and I flop back and forth in our beds at night when we're worried and anguished and wondering what is tomorrow going to bring. He keeps track of all the days when we can't sleep and we get out of bed and we wander and pace in the house thinking, what's going to happen? The worries that keep us up at night are precious before our God, He says. And by His Spirit, He comforts us right now in our distress with His heart wide open to people like you and me. And friends, unless we have confidence that God notices and He cares about every single affliction in our lives, it will feel to us like our tears are wasted and they are spilled to the ground. But it's not true. God captures them in His bottle. Why would somebody do that if every one of them didn't matter? Your pain and your anguish matters to God. And He wants to keep these tears close to His heart as a reminder of your affliction so that He's compassionate and loving in your hour of need. Our suffering is precious before our tender Lord. It's that perspective, that hope that David has that's so real in his life that verse 13, he already begins to praise while he's still on the run. Isn't that incredible? He composed this while he was still in the cave. And yet he praised the Lord. He thanked the Lord for his deliverance. His hope was so real that he was enabled to praise God in the middle of the storm. Because David knew that that storm was not the end of the horizon of his life. There's a God who makes promises. And he's made promises to David. And he's made promises to you and to me. In some ways... Romans chapter 8 is the New Testament match for Psalm 56. Listen to what Romans 8 says. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, the Spirit of God keeps our tears in a bottle, tears born of our sufferings in a bottle that He draws near to us and reminds us that we are His dearly loved children. Even as verse 36 of Romans 8 hints that sometimes we feel like we are sheep being led to the slaughter. We feel like all is lost. Or as David felt that he was down in a hole and at any moment someone was going to break in and take his life. Or as you and I feel that I'm ready to give up. I can't take this anymore, Lord. Verse 37 continues of Romans 8. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a New Testament, Psalm 56. It's prayers born of honesty. Prayers shaped by perspective. Prayers soaked in hope in knowing the promises of God. Where's your life going to come from when you're on the run? It comes when you remember that you're under the watchful eye of your Father. And you are in the grasp of your Savior, the Lord Jesus. And you are indwelled by the life-giving, life-speaking Spirit of God, enabling you to endure. Life on the outside looks chaotic. Turn to the inside and spend time with your Lord. And there you'll find strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You've not left us to figure out a confusing and broken world on our own, but You bear witness to us through Your Spirit in our hearts. You've given us hope. You've given us promises. You've assured us of Your watchful, careful, loving eye. Father, we ask that You would help us to have that perspective. There are some in our congregation whose life feels like is on the run right now. And we ask that You would strengthen them to relate to You with honesty and by Your Spirit to give them perspective and hope as they call out to Your name. Lord, our world desperately needs this too. Our world is shaking, it's quaking, it's falling apart. There is evil in every corner even in every corner of my heart. And I ask Jesus that by the blood of Jesus spilled upon the cross for people deserving judgment, would you begin to bring healing and forgiveness, reconciliation and restoration into this world. May that life of the cross break into our church and break into this world and begin to change us from the inside out. We pray all this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.